Shalom, and welcome to Kehilat Rosh Pina, a dynamic, multicultural, and growing Messianic Jewish congregation located in the heart of Oklahoma City and led by Rabbi Michael Weigand. Our goal is to bring you the message of the Word each week from a Jewish perspective and to exalt Messiah Yeshua as Lord and Savior overall. We are a loving congregation made up of both Jew and Gentile, now one in the Messiah, with Shabbat morning services at 10.40 a.m. and various studies throughout the week. Please come and join us next time you are in Oklahoma City. We would love to have you. And now, we hope you enjoy today's message. My message today is from the Torah portions, which are Matot and Masay, um, meaning tribes and also journeys. Um, I, I looked up when I, was, when I did this, I, I, I had a few days to put it together, but um, I noticed that um, I talked on Masay a couple of years ago, and actually I, I did Tishba'ah, but Tishba'ah is a week away now, so, uh, so we got a little bit of time. But that's a reminder of where we're at in the in the biblical cycle. We just we just went into the fifth month, so we're coming up on that uh, the, the month of Av. Um, but I want to talk about, and I'm going to take my my, my message really from Masay. Um, that's that's the journeys, and so that really begins in Numbers 33. And so if, if we could, let's read the first few verses of, of that. Uh, of Numbers 33. These are the journeys of the children of Israel who went out from the land of Egypt by their armies under the hand of Moshe and Aharon. Now Moses wrote down the starting points of their journeys at the command of the Lord. And these are their journeyings according to their starting points. They departed from Ramses in the first month. On the 15th day of the first month, on the day after the Passover, the children of Israel went out with boldness in the sight of all the Egyptians. For the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had killed among them. Also on their gods, the Lord had executed judgments. Then the children of Israel moved from Ramses and camped at Sukkot. Now, it continues on if you go through that chapter and they... they New place, a new new spot. Uh, they they mentioned, in all, they they stop at forty-two different places. Uh, a lot of them were in the first year and in the last year. Or so really, it was it's kind of more spread out in the middle. But uh, but we know some of these places are where they were. Some places they stayed longer. Some some places they only stayed for a very short time. And we all know that when the pillar of cloud, when God, who was manifested as the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire, moved. Israel moved with them. They had God dwelling with them at this time. It's a wonderful thing. We all know the stories. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, this, this is probably one of the best known of, <laughs> of those different stories uh, in the Bible. There's been movies. Uh, it, it's recounted. And, and really, the story of moving, of, of traveling, um, really began with our very, the very first Jew, if you will, Jew, Jew numero uno, as one comedian referred to him, Abraham. Um, in Lech Lecha, you know, uh, God said, get away from this place and go to a place I will show you, right? Um, and that's in Genesis 12, 1. Now the Lord said to Abraham, 
Get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house to a land I will show you. And again, that started this whole journey, didn't it? This, this covenant relationship that God has made with a family. We recount this every year at Pesach. It's relived at, at Sukkot. So every year at Pesach, during the Seder, we tell the Exodus story in some way. Usually, it can be a lot of fun, especially if you have kids. And you know, when, the, when it's the ice, they throw ice. You know, they, they do all the things. We, at least we do, all of them physically. It's kind of fun. Uh, Exodus 13, 5 through 8 is why this is done. And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, that you will keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread you shall eat. Uh, or shall you be eaten seven days, and no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. And you shall tell your son in that day. And this is where they get this. They're reading the scriptures carefully, right? And you shall tell your son in that day, saying, this is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. So we retell the story. And again, like I said, because we do, it's one of the most well-known stories that we talk about. When they, made, when they made it to the promised land, they were told to remember the, their journey. In Deuteronomy, we're given that. In Deuteronomy 26, uh, 1 through 9. And it shall be when you come into the land which the Lord God is giving you as an inheritance, and you possess it and dwell in it, that you shall take some of the first of the produce of the ground which you shall bring from the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and put it in a basket and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. And you shall go to the one who is priest in those days and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I, come, I have come to the country which the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket out of your hand, set it down before you in the altar of your God, and you shall answer and say before the Lord your God, My father was a Syrian about to perish. And he went down to Egypt and dwelt there, few in number, and there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. But the Egyptians mistreated us. One of the great understatements of the, of the, the, the Bible. Uh, afflicted us and laid hard bondage on us. And then we cried out to the Lord our God, and the Lord heard our voice and looked at on, on our affliction and on our labor and oppression. So the Lord brought us up out of Egypt with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, with great terror, with signs and wonders. He has brought us to this place and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So we're told in a couple of places that they're supposed to keep, keep repeating this story. Even six months after Pesach, when we celebrate Sukkot, what is Sukkot about? It's literally to remember dwelling in the tents as we came out of Egypt. In Leviticus 23, 42 and 43, it reads, You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israeli, Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So it's interesting. The Lord wants us to talk about this. He wants us to repeat this story. But when it comes to the children of Israel, the Jews... Even more so, they, they, are, they have a reputation, if you will, 
of being the wandering Jews. Now, where does that come from? There's several different things about that. Um, actually, you can find a website on, that, that talks about the expulsions and exoduses of the Jews on Wikipedia. Right? It details expulsions and events that prompted significant streams of Jewish refugees, starting with the Assyrian captivity in the northern kingdom in 732 B.C., and then, of course, the Babylonian captivity of the southern kingdom in 585 B.C., the Jewish expulsion from Israel by the Romans in the first centuries, and it continues on to Jews being expelled from every European nation <laughs> during the second millennium, you know, culminating with the Holocaust in the 1940s. And, and even the last entry in there was from 2021, um, detailing Jews fleeing Yemen. There was another website that just sort of summed it up a little bit differently. It had 109 locations where, whence, the way they worded it, 109 locations whence Jews have been expelled since A.D. 250. So we all know, I mean, everybody knows about the, the exodus from Spain in 1492, or at least that's pretty well known. Um, I, I always have found this ironic because I'm a fan of Shakespeare that the Jews were expelled from England in like something like a 1293 or, or, or something along that long line. And they weren't let back. They didn't remove that, that order until after Shakespeare's death. So his character Shylock I, I couldn't have been based on anybody he met because they weren't even in England at the time. It's kind of ironic. Um, but because of that, the Jews have been moving. Uh, it's recounted in literature and song. William Wordsworth has a song for the wandering Jew, a poem. Uh, and, and we sing the Matsor every uh, Hanukkah. And um, there's a line when we do it in English that refers to, instead of children of the Maccabees, it will some, some of them, the translations will say the children of the wanderers. So they are known as that they're moving all the time, that they've been kicked out of places. Um, that's our story of most of the Jews in America, right? Um, one lesson Jews have learned from their time among nations is that this was not, none of those places where they were were their permanent home. Their home was elsewhere, right? They always knew that they had to keep moving and, and they, because they weren't home yet. Um, all believers know that our time on earth it's temporary as well. This isn't our permanent home. Our permanent home is elsewhere. But why does the journey take time? Why do we spend so much time here? We know where we're going. Let's just get done and go. But it doesn't work that way, does it? Why did Israel's journey take 40 years? Well, the quick answer might be the spies, right? The spies went there. They came back with a bad report. God said, for every day you were there spying out the land, you're going to stay here 40 years. But remember that there's no plan B with God, right? He knew this beforehand. He knew what was going to happen. Is it possible that we might learn more about Israel's time in the desert than just the object lesson of the 40 days for the 40 uh, the 40 years for the 40 days. I'm going to contend that it's because relationships take time. 
Israel had seen God's power, but they did not yet know his character. In the desert, God fed them daily. He protected them. He actually kept them clothed. Their clothes didn't wear out, right? He gave them water in the desert, miraculously, for 40 years. When they passed through the sea, Israel sang praises to the Lord. This was right at the beginning of the journey. We sang about it. We do that today, right? With the Michamoka, you know, we, we talk about that. But only days later, they complained to the Lord. So praising God in the moment doesn't mean we really understand or trust Him. And we see that today. Less than two months later, God spoke to all Israel, the entire nation, right, from Mount Sinai, from Har Sinai. Israel feared God's power. They wanted Moses to go alone because they got worried about it. They said they would obey. But when Moses tarried on the mountain, Israel made a golden calf. So seeing God's power did not really change them enough to trust him. The first time we don't hear about Israel complaining for a while is when they work together on the tabernacle, which they do after the golden calf incident until the beginning of the next year. So I believe from looking at that, we can say that working together with others helps us develop relationships. Working together on things for God helps us focus on the community of God. Why? People talk. They share their views on God and what he wants. And if somebody has something a little bit off, somebody else may say, no, that's not quite right. Or maybe it is. You learn something as we talk, as we share. This conversation can lead the entire community to a better understanding of God. Provided, of course, they have somebody who understands God in the first place, well enough to share with others or correct people when they say the wrong things. But working together was good. But God also gave them instructions, and he told them why. Let's look at Leviticus 11.45. For I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. In Leviticus 19.2, speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So we're learning, if you think about it, as we read through and we read through the, the commandments, if you will, or the instructions that we see in Torah, yes, we're supposed to live it. We will be happier. Yes, this is what God would have us do. Yes. But why? Because it's something about the character of God. It tells us something about him as we understand it. And as you live something, you understand it better than if you just hear it. You know, one of the common sayings that you tell your children when they're growing up, you know, it's one thing to hear about pain, but you don't really understand it until you're actually in pain. <laughs> you know, you, there, there are lots of things that as you go through an experience, it really helps drive that, that lesson home. And there's a lot of subtlety, a lot of subtlety in relationships. Um, so God repeats the message about being holy, and I want you to be holy, for I am holy, throughout Leviticus. It's also repeated for us in the Brit Hadashah, 
the new covenant or the renewed covenant, whichever way you'd prefer to look at it. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, he says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Clearly, Peter knows the scriptures and he's relating that and it's still applicable even after the resurrection of Messiah. It seems that just doing the everyday tasks of life and pausing to remember what God has said is the way to understand God, to understand that he is holy and he wants us to be holy. It's just living. It's time. Maybe that's why we have life and maybe that's why it took 40 years to get through the desert. Forty years later, we do see some signs that Israel is beginning to understand. But it's still a bit of a roller coaster ride, to be honest. So developing a relationship with God takes time for all of us. And what should, what, what about all those years or what about all those people that fell in the desert? I mean, they were told at the time of the spies, none of you are going to make it. But I mean, let's be honest with ourselves for a minute or two. If somebody told you today you had 40 years, they told me that, I'd be like, well, uh, duh. I mean, of course, I'm 40 years, <laughs> I'm going to die. I mean, I would, be, I would be a very old man if I made it another 40 years. Not there's possibility, but it's probably, but statistically, I'm not going to make it 40 years. 40 years is a pretty good chunk of change, isn't it? What, what, did, what did they do during that 40 years? God gave them 40 years. The generation that fell, he gave them the opportunity to learn themselves about God. They're also following these commands. They're there with their children. And that's the second thing. They got the opportunity to teach their children. So the people that go into the land are taught not just by God and Moses, but also by their parents for those 40 years. And that's, as I said, what many of us get today. We only get a short time to learn and to teach the next generation. And that's, that's true for all of us. In Leviticus 19, 18, it says, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of Israel, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. When we develop a relationship with God, we also develop relationships with other people. It's really kind of impossible to separate the two. We talk about the most important commandments are loving God and loving our neighbor, and that's true. But I don't think that we can... We can say that we love God or show that we love God without other people. It's kind of necessary because that's how we get to walk it out. That, of course, re is reiterated and emphasized again in the Brit Hadashah. In Mark 12, 28 through 31, and this will again be familiar with the liturgy. Then one of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked them, which is the first commandment of all? Yeshua answered him. And Yeshua is just simply, of course, as we all know here, the Hebrew name for Jesus. But Yeshua answered him, this, for the first commandment of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He starts with the Shema. And the Shema continues, actually, 
for quite some time. So Ve'ahavta is part of the Shema, if we're going to be technical about it. I mean, you can go and look it up on, on Wikipedia. It's actually, the Shema is usually much longer. But we, we, we do that verse as we turn towards Jerusalem, and all Israel does that. They, they turn towards Jerusalem and have and prayed towards Jerusalem since the time of Solomon. But he said, he starts with the Shema, and then he says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first commandment. The second, like it, is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the relationship between love and God and your, love, love and your neighbor is, is intertwined so many other times that I'm going to sum it up with one from 1 John verses 20 and 21. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? The next verse, 21, and this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. So if you want to show that you love God, love your neighbor. <laughs> it's kind of a little ironic, I think, but it's true. We can see it. We know that it's that way. We know that that's the way that, uh, that God works. But again, these relationships take time. We have to know something about each other in order to love one another. We have to see a person's reliability in different circumstances to have some confidence in their behavior and their decision-making. We need to see how consistent or how true a person is over time. If somebody makes monumental mistakes, we tend to look at their views and opinions a little, little askance, right? I mean, maybe not that trustworthy. Because developing character takes time, and character is revealed over time. Relationships help us understand a person's character, but it's still a process that takes time. In Romans 5, 3 through 4, it says, not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. It's one of the places in Scripture where God tells us there's a process, right? Yes, we always focus on the fact that we're glorying in tribulation, which is not really anybody's first choice, I don't think. But we glory in tribulations, and the, the, the writer of Romans, Paul, Rav Shaul, glories in tribulations because he knows that's part of the process. He knows that tribulation is going to show the perseverance. It's going to help him develop that perseverance. And with that perseverance, he will develop character. And developing that character brings hope. Israel learned Moses and Joshua's character during their time in the wilderness. They had 40 years. Again, that time that they spent in the wilderness helped them understand and learn about God and about their leaders. There are some things that are uniquely learned from Israel's journey, though, their time in the desert. Israel's journey was an example for us. How do we know that? 
Well, we're told that. <laughs> if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 6, it reads, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Messiah. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the extent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So as we go through this every year, as we talk about this, as we bring it up in Pesach, as we bring it up in Sukkot, have you ever stopped to realize that this was partially for us so that we could learn? These are examples for us. Why would God give them as an example for us? The unfortunate answer, in my opinion, is because we're like them. We have the same weaknesses. I, I can't tell you the number of times I, I actually had a, a lady here in this congregation yell at me during a, a Shabbaton class one time and said, why are you talking about these guys? I'm not like them. I'm like Moses and Joshua. And we might think we are. But, boy, you're arrogant if you believe that, especially if you haven't gone through the process of being tried and tested and showing that perseverance. Because I want to be Moses. I want to be Joshua. But <laughs> I recognize I might not always live up to that standard. It's good to read about Israel's experience in the wilderness. But then we need to pause and see how it applies to our lives today. And it does. Here's, here's an, again, another reality is that human behavior is the same as it's always been. It is why the Bible is applicable to us today. You can read about something literally thousands of years ago and we behave the same way, we have the same temptations, the same desires, it's relevant because we're the same people. We have the same wants and desires, the same weaknesses. So, those who ignore Scripture, those who ignore the opportunity to look at what happened in the wilderness, do so at their own peril, really. They're, they're denying themselves a valuable aid to how they can do better today by just looking at what has happened before and understanding how God dealt with them and how God deals with us. Because, oh yeah, God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we know that. So that's one way it was different. Israel's journey in the wilderness is also a type, a shadow, an example of a believer's life in a, in a figurative sense. In the Corinthians chapter 10 verses we just read, we, we see the journey of all believers. God saves us. Israel, he saved from Egypt. Us, he saves from sin. This is done through no work of our own. He alone saves. We start our journey with baptism. Israel passed, uh, you know, they were under the cloud and then they passed through the sea. And actually under, right? As they went through. For us, 
symbolically, we are baptized in living water. It's the first step that as soon as we become believers, that's, that's a way of manifesting to the world that that's, that's what we're doing. God miraculously provides us with a way to live in the natural world or to live in a na- that in the natural world would be death. If God had not created a space for them in the, in the, the Sea of Reeds or the Red Sea, if he had not created that space for them to live, they would have died. So in that baptism, we learn that it is only God. We rely upon God for our very existence. How do we know that? Well, God let the, the pillar of cloud down, and Israel's armies followed in. Then he said, let's just let it go back to normal. That's how the, Israel, or the Egyptians were killed. It just was like it normally is, without God intervening. And that was death for the Egyptians. So if we allow nature to take its course, we're going to die, right? We need to do better than that. Um, What's the next thing? Oh, yeah, they went and got the law. Um, When when they got the law, his instructions for us, it it, it blesses us and it blesses others. Rob Shul says that our fathers all ate the same spiritual food and drank all the same spiritual drink. So God literally gave them food and drink in the, in the desert, right? But he also taught them how to live and how to interact with one another. Both can be considered spiritual food and water, right? I mean, you can, it, it's the, the food and water, and miraculous food and water, but it's also the, the instruction that he gave them. That's that spiritual water. God also provides us physically and spiritually. We thank him for our daily bread. We, he still works with us and in us. He provides for us, even though we like to think that we're doing it all on our own power. We're not, right? God is with us, and he provides us our daily bread. And he also provides us with our spiritual drink, uh, food and drink. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 3, 2. Rav Shaul uses some of the same language. I fed you with milk and not with solid food. For until now, you were not able to receive it. And even now you are still not able. So they were still on milk. Are we still on milk? Rav Shaul says that they all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. That rock was Messiah. God gave Israel water from a rock in the desert. And here he tells us that Yeshua was that rock in the wilderness. Yeshua, Jesus, kept Israel alive in the desert. You ever thought about that, what that tells us there? He's been working with God's people long before people give him credit for doing so. Yeshua also provides us with living water. And living water in Scripture is often symbolically or represents his Holy Spirit, his Ruach. And his Spirit also provides us life. So, that's Israel, that's some of the things that they can learn from their 40 years in the desert. That got me thinking about Yeshua. Yeshua came to this earth and lived an entire life. Well, why? Well, let's think about a few things. He came in the likeness of man. God is spirit, and that's something we need to understand. In John 4, 24, it tells us plainly, 
God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And it's one of those things that we just say, and it just blows past us. I, I like math. It's kind of like when you look at math, and you start in math, and you see a line, and you draw a line, and everybody says, I understand a line. A line's made up of points, which is infinitesimally small. It has no space. It has no distance. It, it, it doesn't take up anything. But if you put enough of them together, it makes a line. And that line has no, no area. But if you put enough of them together, you get area. And you're like, well, that doesn't make any sense. But everything is based on those things. We are based, basing our faith, we're basing our truth on a couple of things. God is spirit. And even though we don't understand that, I am convinced that people do not understand what that means. Let's talk about what it means a little bit. God is spirit. That means he's outside the physical world in which we live. The universe is physical. Space, matter, time, right? It is physical, and it's the only world we understand. As, as an engineer, I use a lot of principles and laws that we use. I, I, I do understand very predictable. Uh, it's all very great. makes it very wonderful that we can build and create. But God, as spirit, is not part of the universe. He created it. He's outside it. What does that mean? When God wants to talk to humans, he manifests himself into our world in some way. We see the pillar of cloud. We see the pillar of fire. That's one way. We hear his voice. That's another way. Yeshua was unique. An appearance of God, even in human form, is not really unique. We see many times, we, as we read through with Abraham, he met the angel of the Lord, who is identified as yod heh vav right? Physically there, talks to him. Uh, when Joshua went into the promised land, he met the Adonai Stavaot, God, the Lord of hosts, as he went in. So God appearing to man in human form, although rare, is not unknown. We can look throughout Scripture and see, you know, the, the most common one for me is, is you know, the, the angel of the Lord, because he speaks for the Lord. The Lord says it's his words, you know, and yet he's outside of it. But living an entire life as a, as a human, that was different. That was unique. And it is that, it is the reality of his divinity, God manifested in the flesh, that is the greatest stumbling block to the Jews even today. It was a stumbling block then, and it's a stumbling block now. Even though they knew that he had manifested in human form, they said, how could God live as a man? Many can't reconcile this human life with his divinity. As believers, we accept the truth of his divinity. In 1 Timothy 3.16, we read, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. The whole thing right there for us. It says it very plainly. He is, in him, it says elsewhere, in him dwells all the power of the Godhead bodily. I mean, there's really no mystery. It says he creates the world. God created the world. 
it, it, the same, you go through the Old Testament, New Testament, you, you, you see the many times of attributes that, that belong to God, he manifests them. He is divine, but he's unique. He was manifested in the flesh. Again, no plan B with God. This was always the plan. From the beginning, it was the plan. Why? Well, let's think about why God would come and live a life as a man. Relationships take time. A relationship with God. Yeshua, first off, he mo modeled something for us. He took the time to continue his relationship with the Father. While in the flesh, Yeshua often prayed to God the Father. We have that as an example. In Luke 5.16, it reads, So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. So we know that. Now we can ask ourselves, why did he pray? Was it just an example? Is there something about prayer that lets our spirit commune with his spirit? Is it simply a way for us to understand more clearly what we are saying to him and for us to more clearly hear what he is saying to us? I don't know. Whatever the reason or reasons, Yeshua did it often, and he tells us that we should do it often, and we should, and we should model what he did. He went to synagogue on Shabbat. We know that. We'll go to Luke 4, 16 for this one. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. So he was just not sitting on the back row. He was participating when he was coming, but he, was, he went there. He rested on the seventh day. It was, again, modeled for us. Um, he went about teaching and doing good during his time on earth. Matthew 4.23 reads, and, and Yeshua went all about all the Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. And we're used to that. We're, we've heard those things. We know that he did that. Um, he also was obedient. He obeyed the commandments. In John 14.31, we read, but, the world, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Arise and let us go from here. He says many times that he just did what the Father instructed. Here's the really unique and interesting one. That's the relationship with others. I mean, he was having a relationship with God you know, because he is God manifest. He's God already he was doing that before he came here, but relationships with others. He also developed those relationships, didn't he? In Luke 2.52, we're told, and Yeshua increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Because again, you have to do both. Yeshua grew up in a family, a family with brothers and sisters. How many of you have brothers and sisters? I'm the fifth of seven children. And my mother told me that with my brother, who's just 13 months older than me, when we were children, it was the only time she was afraid to get out of bed in the morning because we were either going to be together and making it hard for her because we were fighting or we were going to be together and going and doing something rowdy and that was going to be hard for her with that. So she said, I, I feel bad with seven kids that I was the only time that she felt it was, it was she hated to get out of bed in the morning. But, but children... Families, you know families really well. You know families better than you know anybody else on earth, typically. 
So how do we know that he had a family? Let's look at Matthew 13, 54 through 56. And 54, when he had come into his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? In the next verse, this is kind of the sad part. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? So he had brothers and sisters. Where did this man get all these things? Now, the sad part of that is because they knew him, they couldn't see him as he was. So it, it limited his, his ministry among them, not because he wasn't God. It's because they couldn't make that mental bridge, right? They couldn't see how could, how could that happen. His brothers even taunted him. We even have that in Scripture. Let's look at John chapter 7, 2 through 5. Now, the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand, as I was talking about Sukkot, right? His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples may also see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. And, and we, we read that he told them, hey, I'll get there. And then he, he leaves a couple days after they take off. Because they were still obedient. They all went to Jerusalem when they were supposed to. Um, he had friends. In John eleven eleven, he said, these things he said. And after he had said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. And of course, that's when Lazarus had actually died. And matter of fact, the disciples were confused at the beginning. Oh, good, it's sleeping. He's going to get better. No, no, no. He's dead. I'm going to go raise him. And here's the other thing with these friends. You get to see people at times of trouble a little bit more clearly. Let's continue on in that story. Because he treats people with kindness and compassion. And you see evidence of that in Scripture as well. John 11, starting at verse 32. Then when Mary had come where Yeshua was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, oh Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's got to rip you apart. Therefore, when Yeshua saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Every kid learns that this is the shortest scripture in the entire Bible. Jesus wept. But the significance of it is profound. God manifested in the flesh, wept. Even though he knew what was going to happen, even though he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, he didn't say, knock it off. I'm, I'm about, don't worry about it. He wept. He sympathized. He empathized. I think it's an incredible story. And, and there's many like that when you read the scriptures and carefully and see those things. Yet with all those relationships, he never sinned. 1 John 3, 5 says, And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there, was, there is no sin. And it's because he loves us, and he loved us first as we read in 1 John 4, 
8 and 9, and also in verse 19. So we'll do those three, three verses, starting at verse 8. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested towards us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. And then in 19, verse 19, it wraps it up. We love him because he first loved us. These are not unfamiliar scriptures. But could we have had all of this? Could we have had this example? Could we have seen how God manifested in the flesh would live? Not without his life. We have a recording of that. What can we say about his character? <laughs> it's not much to put on this, right? He's perfect. His character is perfect. He literally defines what perfect character should be. And that's what's so significant, that he lived with other people for 30-plus years. They could see and testify of his life. And many wrote things at, at that time. Even his enemies could write, but they didn't refute the facts of his life. Any, anyone who knew him, and many did, could testify of his unimpeachable character. He was sinless for 30-plus years, and after 30-plus years, we can say with some certainty, he would have been sinless no matter how long he lived. Time gives the reality and the significance of his sinlessness. It's not a momentary thing. And there are some unique things that we learn from Yeshua's life. Yeshua's sojourn on earth was not an hour, a day, a week. He lived over 30 years, as I've said, from a babe to a full-grown man. All that awkward time, all that awkward transition. He was seen by others the entire time. The most unique thing we can learn from his life is the perfect example he set for us in everything he did his entire life. What a blessing. What, a, what an opportunity, right? Because he is, and it says in Scripture, that he is the most complete revelation of God. He is our example. He was kind. He loved others. He showed mercy. He was obedient. In some ways, he was mundane. Think about that. He lived in a family. How boring. He performed, performed menial labor. He lived frugally. He did not seem to worry about financial needs, but neither did he shun those who were wealthy. He attended funerals and weddings, the, everything's of life, the common day things of life. He, he spent time with people, rich and poor, educated and uneducated. He ate, he drank, he taught, large and small groups, rich and poor. And I Obviously, we could, we could sit and just open up and read the, the four Gospels, and we, we have examples of all of this stuff. Educated, uneducated, observant Jews and sinners. He, he, he taught all of them. He reached out to others who were outside his normal circle. Sometimes we get some of our, our best teaching, actually, when he reaches out to Samaritans. As he went to the Samaritan woman at the well, he told her clearly that he was Messiah. He, he interacted with lepers and other afflicted people that were often separated from society. He actually even inter interacted with a few Romans, some centurions who came to him. In short, he showed us the way. In John 14, 15, it says, If you love me, keep my commandments. It's pretty plain, pretty simple, pretty hard to do over time. He invites us to follow him in Mark 8, 33. When he had called the people to himself, 
with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So, we have Israel, we have Yeshua, what about us? While we all have a life, we all have about 70 or 80 years in this life, some more, some less. How do I say 70 or 80 years? Psalm 90, 10. It's often quoted, but the days of our lives are 70 years. And if by reason of strength they are 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. <laughs> it's pretty dismissive even saying that you have 70 or 80 years. I like that. I like that scripture. Our lifespan is God's design. Again, no plan B with God. He set it up this way that we are going to live on this earth for a length of time. He also set up the fact that we're going to live in families. That's part of God's design. Living with other people in a community, all part of God's design. Why? Relationships take time. <laughs> we have our relationship with God. We must love God and our neighbors. We've talked about before. Um, I was going to net read you the other example. Um, I, I will skip over to the interest of time about where he, he talks about loving God and loving your neighbor and says all the law hangs on those two commandments. Because loving someone is not a momentary thing. It requires time. Love develops over time. We all know this to be true because we've all experienced it. We've seen it. We watch it in our children. We watch it in, in friends and family. We learn how to do it better over time. At least we hope we learn how to do it better over time. <laughs> People start to believe in it only after a, a length of time. Nobody believes it the first time. You just meet somebody and you say, I love you. They're like, yeah, <laughs> I don't know that I go for that. Loving those close to, to us is many times one of our biggest challenges. Why is that? That is because we know our families better than we know anybody else. They know us. They have a history with us. They know the stupid things we did when we were younger. They know the, the, the time we lost our temper. They know all of that. And we have a lifetime of memories. Ironically, the thing that fixes that is also time. When you get past it and when, you, when they learn that they can trust you, you get over that. We, we, we all learn that. And, of course, we need to pray, too, in modeling after the Messiah. In Luke 18, 1, it says, Then he spoke a parable to them that men, men always ought to pray and not lose heart. So Yeshua said it very plainly, not just showed us an example. He's telling us that we should pray. He tells the intent of the parable. He tells us that we ought to pray. And again, developing a relationship with God takes time. And we learn how to express ourselves better in prayer to him. We learn how to listen better. And we learn to trust God through our experiences and because of our experiences. And as the relationship with others, we've talked about this, they're intertwined. Um, if anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. We're told that. And just like Israel in the wilderness, these relationships, these relationships takes time. We still have to know each other the same as they did. We still have to see each other's reliability in different circumstances. We still have to see how consistent, how true a person is over time. So let's 
broaden our scope to include our congregation, not just our immediate families. Now it's going to get a little tricky, isn't it, right? Loving our congregation might be a better, big, bigger ask for us. The same things are true of the congregation are as they are in a family. We still need to know each other. If we don't know each other, we're not going to be friends or, or, or love each other. We need to spend time with one another. This is why we have some of these meetings. This is why we have classes. This is why we have work projects. This is why we meet outside here. The relationships may not be as long or as close as our families, or in some cases they may. Sometimes we find kindred spirits. We may find very different people than us. That's okay. Matter of fact, it's more than okay. It's a great thing. Because it broadens again your understanding. It broadens again your ability. You may not have ever thought of things in a, in a certain way until you meet other people that you know and love and realize, oh, okay, I never thought about it that way. I could give you many examples in my, just even in my married life, of my, my wife um, thought of things differently than I did. <laughs> but I've corrected that. No, um, I'm joking. She's not here, so I can say that out loud, but <laughs> nobody tell her. <laughs> okay. Character is revealed over time. Let me give you an example from Scripture on this. Philippians 2, 19 through 23. But I trust in the Lord, Yeshua, to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are of Messiah Yeshua. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with, as it goes with me. Notice the phrase, his proven character. Timothy proved his character. When did Timothy prove his character? In the past, over time, right? It was experiences that they had had. It, but the, the community knew about it. They knew his character. So let's wrap this up in the conclusion. Some aspects of our life's journey is largely the same as Israel's journey in the wilderness. Relationships take time, and we need to develop relationships with both God and other people. Character is also a product of testing and time. It does not happen overnight. But we are blessed to have examples. We have Israel in the wilderness that we can learn from. We have Yeshua's life recorded for us so we can learn from that. Life is a journey, but God loves us. And since this is his plan, he also planned for our success. Let me conclude with an encouraging word from Scripture in 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Do you not know that those who run, a race, run in a race all run? but one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. We can obtain the prize, so run. Let's close with prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we are grateful to you for the many blessings you give us. We're grateful to you for the scriptures and for the examples that you have given us. We're grateful for a congregation where we get to uh, love each other and show each other our love, and also, Lord, as we broaden out to the community at large. Lord, we ask for your spirit to be with us in all things. But, Lord, help us to love one another. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the Shabbat message from Rosh Pinah Messianic Jewish Congregation in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. We would love to have you visit us. 
Our weekly services begin at 10.40 a.m. each Shabbat, and we are located at 2600 Northwest 55th Place, north of Northwest Expressway at the corner of Northland Avenue and Northwest 55th Place. We meet each Shabbat for wonderful praise and worship with dance, liturgy, teaching, food, fellowship, excellent children's programs, and Bible studies on Tuesday nights. For more information, please visit our website, www.roshpinah.org. That's R-O-S-H-P-I-N-A-H dot O-R-G. You can also reach us by phone at 405-842-1967 or email us at info at roshpinah.org. Thank you for spending time in the Word with us today. Shabbat Shalom and blessings in Messiah Yeshua.